given for his name's sake. Let's pray. Lord God, meet with us again today through the power of your Spirit working through this word and show us the Savior. We ask in his name, Jesus' name, amen. The title for today's sermon comes from 1 John chapter 2, and the verse reads as follows. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. We saw that same theme in the Daniel passage that we read as our confession of faith a little, or our confession of sin a little bit earlier. We saw there that Daniel finishes his petition and his prayer for the sake of the name of God and the people who bear that name. So let's keep that verse, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, in mind as we look at the passage today. Our forgiveness and God's name are inextricably linked together. Our passage begins today with one of the most stunning petitions that we find in the Old Testament. You're familiar perhaps, or I'll bring it to mind, that there's a parallel to this in the New Testament where Philip to Jesus says to him, show us the Father. And Jesus' response is, have, have I been with you for so long and you don't understand? But here in the Old Covenant, we get this petition from Moses, please show me your glory. Well, what is he asking? And why is he asking for it? And why is he asking for that at this particular time? Exodus has had a lot to say about seeing the glory of God. Now, lots of the Bible talks about beholding the glory of God, but Exodus in particular. So we've got Moses seeing something of the glory of God in the burning bush. And in Exodus chapter 16, as the people are grumbling about no food in the wilderness, God himself says, I'm going to show you my glory. And the way that he reveals his glory to them is twofold. One, it is in the cloud, and the cloud is something that had already been familiar to them, and we can expect the glory of the cloud. But secondly, when he says, I'm going to show you my glory, in particular, what is referenced is the provision of manna. So in this case, showing his glory means that God is taking care of them in a particular action, providing manna for them. And then, of course, we come to Sinai and all of the things that we've read over the past months about what they experienced, Moses in particular, but all of the people in witness to what was going on on the top of the mountain. And in fact, Moses himself, after the people had covenanted and God had covenanted with the people, then of course goes back up to the mountain, which is once again described for us as being in cloud and fire, and he goes up into the glory of the Lord. That's the description that we get from the book. He goes up there and he receives the instructions for the tabernacle. Now, even our call to worship, as we read it this morning, said the heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples behold his glory. Well, okay, everybody beholds the glory of God, 
but of anybody who beheld the glory of God, certainly to this point in human history, it would have been Moses, right? He's the one who has seen it and seen all sorts of manifestations of the glory of God. And I didn't even mention his time of meeting with God in the tent of meeting that we considered together last week. Moses is a man who knew what the glory of God was like. Now that said, we have to deal with at this point this tension which exists throughout Scripture and certainly or perhaps especially within this book of Exodus as well as to whether or not it is possible to see God at all. In other words, what does it mean to see the invisible spirit God? How does that take place? How does he reveal himself at all? And perhaps more significantly or equally significantly is if that's possible, if it is possible for God to reveal himself in some particular way so that we can see it, can a sinful man see that? and be allowed to live. And Exodus has wrestled with that question, whether or not that is possible. And in general, the answer according to Exodus appears to be, can we see the glory of God? Well, yes and no. You can see aspects of the glory of God. And as you see these aspects of the glory of God, you can experience more or less intimacy with him and communion, communication with him as he reveals himself in that glory. So last week, for example, we looked at that tent of meeting and we saw the phrase in the tent of meeting that there the Lord met with Moses as a man speaks with his friend face to face. That's in the same chapter as the one we're working on right now. Face-to-face, therefore, can't mean that Moses was seeing God face-to-face, or it's totally inconsistent within the chapter itself. So face-to-face here is an expression of the intimacy, the communion that they had with one another rather than a physical description. Even Moses, who is the mediator of God's people par excellence, even he cannot see the unmediated glory of God. The great mediator cannot see the unmediated glory of God. It would be too much even for him, and thus we have described for us in the passage today the precautions and the protections that are going to be afforded to Moses in this particular revealing of the glory of God. So you're going to go in the cleft of the rock, I'm going to put my hand behind you or over you, and then pass by, and you can see my back. Now this seeing of God remains a biblically difficult knot to untangle throughout all of the Scripture until we come to the Lord Jesus Christ until we come to Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate. But even then, even then, the incarnation and seeing the glory of God is something of a mystery to us, and it's okay. It's okay if you walk out of here and say, I don't understand all of this, how you can see the glory of God and how you cannot see it. It's okay. 
God is greater than us and cannot be perceived by our senses, at least not perfectly and not yet. Jesus came, and he is the one who, as a mediator, before he came, dwelt in the unmediated presence of God and would return to that position, to that position of the unmediated presence of God. He can stand there. He can endure the full presence of the glory of God. And in fact, even in his personhood, he has all of the fullness of deity dwelling within him to such an extent, to such an extent that we, through the working of his spirit, though we have not seen him, I'm sorry, this is a long, complex sentence, through the working of his spirit, though we have not seen him, our hearts have been enlightened so that we can see the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's the verse that's on the front of your bulletin. It's from 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Paul is dealing with exactly this question. You haven't seen him, but because your heart has been enlightened, you've been able to see him through the working of his spirit, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Sorry, we had to talk about that just for a moment. Because still, we've got this question from Moses, of all people, show me your glory. And you want to say, well, Moses, haven't you already seen it? Isn't for you, of all people, this kind of a regular thing? And, and yet, clearly, there's something different, perhaps not in the phraseology as we perceive it just written for us right here, but there's something different that Moses is asking because God picks up on the difference in what he has said and addresses it in a particular way in which it hasn't been addressed to this point. Why does Moses right here want to see the glory of God? Well, let me tell you what this is not. This is not a pursuit or an exercise in personal piety. Moses is not making a simple statement here saying, God, I just want to be with you. I just want to see you. He is not pursuing a spiritual experience or a mystical encounter for the sake of his soul. The passage has often been used in this way. And frankly, I'm one who's probably guilty of that in my own past and thinking about this passage as to see this as looking for a particular experience of God. You have a hymn uh, in your hymn book, A Wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock and shelters me there with his hand. It's written by Fanny Crosby, who was blind. And of course, so a passage in which you say, show me your glory, has particular reference with someone, for someone who is blind. And yet we're not singing that hymn today because this passage isn't about that. It's not about a personal experience with God as that hymn is. Instead, this passage is entrenched and embedded in the mediatorial work of Moses. 
And I'm sorry if that sounds to you like making a technical issue out of a potential personal spiritual high, but rather be faithful to Scripture than what we would like to hear at any one particular time. God just acceded to Moses' request to be with the people. That is what was in verse 17. It proceeds immediately, the show me your glory petition that Moses gives. The Lord says, the very thing you have spoken, I will do. Why? Because I know you by name and you have found favor in my sight. And the thing that he had petitioned was that God would go with them as a people. He acceded to the request, and there are therefore two things that Moses wants coming out of God's agreement to go with them. Number one, confirmation. I heard it. Confirm it. And number two, I want to know what your disposition is going to be as you go with the people. The disposition will be confirmed as Moses sees the glory of God. Let me put this on a very human term for us here. Let's say you're working with someone and you're dealing through a conflict. Maybe it's email, maybe it's even texting, or maybe it's telephone. And you're talking with someone and you're trying to resolve an issue, but you can't see them. One of the things that you want is to be in the presence of someone. Why? Because you want to look them right in the eye. You want to, you want to be able to read all of the features that are going on, all of the nonverbal communication, you want to see their disposition as they say something to you to know, are they still mad with me or are we okay? I mean, I see this in writing, but I'm not really sure if we're okay or not. Moses wants confirmation and he wants to know the disposition of God. Theophanies confirm the promises of God, theophanies, appearances of God. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. I'm not going to go through them in any kind of depth. I'm just going to state them for us because they are important in leading us to this particular point. Genesis chapter 15, God has made incredibly great and wonderful promises to Abraham, and Abraham's question that follows those great promises that have come from God is, how shall I know? And God brings the theophany, the appearance of the, the covenant-making ceremony to answer that question. Jacob is fleeing his brother, and he's out in the wilderness, and we've talked about this before because it relates to the entire tabernacle session, and he sees in his dreams angels ascending and descending between the earth and heaven, and he wakes up and he names the place Bethel the house of God. God is in this place, and I did not know it. God confirms the promises that he's given to Jacob with this theophany. Chapter 32 of Genesis, God and Jacob are in a wrestling match. And as the wrestling match concludes, Jacob names the place Peniel, the face of God. And take one more example of this, a confirmation of the, the, the promises that God had given. One more example of this comes to us within the book of Exodus itself in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses is confronted with the burning bush and God gives him 
both promises and commands. And the natural question, it would be natural, it was natural from him, it would be natural from us as well, is how am I going to do this? And how is anybody going to believe me that I can do this? Who are you? Who shall I say you are to people? God has a couple of signs, if you'll recall it, that whole section that he's going to give to them. But the signs are a footnote. The signs are a side note. What is the main thing that God gives to Moses to assure this for his people? The name. Tell them my name. I am who I am. It is my name forever. Tell them that name. Theophanies confirm the promises of God, and therefore the stage is set. That's what Moses is looking for. That's the meaning of the request. Keep the people away. Keep the animals away. Carve out new tablets. I'll write on them. Bring them up with you. You ascend. I'll descend. And we'll meet on the top of Sinai. So the Lord descends. And if, now I know we've read this, so I know we're not, but if we are waiting in a passage like this for some grand description of what God looks like, given everything that has preceded it, we're profoundly disappointed when we read it. Because all that we read is that the Lord descended in a cloud, which is remarkable, but in Exodus, normal. He passed, he stood and he passed by. That's it. No other description of the physicality of God or whatever it is that Moses saw in that particular incident. The emphasis instead is on word and name, not sight. Why? Because apart from the few short years that compromised the book of Exodus, and a few short, earth-changing, wonderful years of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, on this side of eternity, this motto reigns. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith doesn't come by seeing. Not in this fallen world. God has chosen the means of hearing to increase our faith. Romans 10, 17. The theophany confirms the promise and assures Moses. But it is the word, it is the word that is spoken here that pierces, that echoes through the pages of Scripture, that heals, and to which we would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in the darkness until the day dawns.
1 Peter 1.19. Peter is reflecting on all of this glory that has been revealed. He's even reflecting on the transfiguration itself, and he's saying, pay attention to the word, the prophetic word that was spoken to you, the words that you have heard from the Lord Jesus Christ and from his servants. Thus, even at the transfiguration, which we read about, we read the story of the transfiguration, God, the voice, does not come in the cloud and say, this is my son, my beloved, my chosen one, with whom I'm well pleased to condense all of the places where this phrase is used. Look at him. Instead, it says, this is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. Just a few people saw it, Peter, James, and John, and reacted in Peter's bewildered way in terms of what is taking place there. Listen to him. And so the voice speaking in verse 6 proclaims this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The words, the name double-stated, the Lord, the Lord, and the character and the actions of God inseparable from that name. These words reverberate throughout the Old Testament. They form the words, they are the words that kings and priests and prophets will use throughout the history of God's people to confess their personal sins and the corporate sins of the people. We've already seen a couple of those in our worship service today. The first hymn that we sang was a rephrasing of Psalm 145 in which this phrase that I just read for us is included and found in Psalm 145. The word of assurance after we confessed our sins today was from Psalm 103, and it includes these words that are given to us exactly right here. And sometimes it is helpful for us to see things perhaps not stated from the positive, but perhaps stated rather from the negative. These are the words that drive Jonah crazy. Remember, Jonah doesn't want the Ninevites to be saved. He doesn't want God to show mercy on the Ninevites. And he complains and says, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew you were like that. And that's why I didn't want to go. I knew you were an Exodus 34 God. That's fine when it applies to me and people I know and people I love and people I like, but don't apply it to them. 
God who relents from disaster. And please, let me just say something. Please don't misunderstand the final part of this, the, the phraseology that is used there in seven, the visiting of the iniquity, uh, by no means clear the guilty, and visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. That gets us sometimes. We, we get puzzled over that, and we try to go, well, how does that, how do you reconcile that with what he just said? The answer is this. What is being referenced here is the fact that sin has consequences. And sometimes sin has consequences within our own lives, and we're the only person who bears that particular consequence. But sometimes sin has multi-generational consequences. So, for example, the Israelites, due to their unfaithfulness here, are going to be in the wilderness for 40 years. That's not a result of the sin of the kids who were in the wilderness, but of their parents. But nevertheless, they are experiencing the consequences of their parents' sin. Same thing in Babylon. Generation after generation after generation will be born in Babylon, not necessarily because of their sins, but because of their parents' sin. And we understand this as well on our level. There are sins that our parents can commit or that we can commit as parents that will have multi-generational impact. It may be divorce, unfaithfulness, poor financial management and planning. It may be something that we've done that leaves a scar on our children or to which our children become susceptible. Faithlessness, lukewarmness in the things of God that may infect several generations. But this is not a statement of the retributive execution of God's judgment onto others besides the person who did it. The firm emphasis here and what is clearly picked up on by Moses and clearly picked up on by every other biblical writer is the fact that God is slow to anger. Now, you can find the description of these things in any commentary you might pick, but slow to anger literally means that God has long nostrils. And as He breathes in and He is full of the anger, because of the long nostrils, it cools down before he responds to the sin of his children. He's abounding in steadfast love. One writer says that that is the tenacious fidelity in relationship that characterizes God. He's full of faithfulness. He's true. He's reliable to thousands, and that is better read to thousands of generations. And if you're counting, that's a minimum of 20,000 years, but don't count forgiving, lifting the burden of iniquity, of guilt, and of sin. And he uses three words there to cover rebellion and betrayal and all points in between. I forgive all of those types of sin. Moses, do you hear my name? Do you see my disposition? Do you see my face as it is expressed through the truth of my words and my identity towards my people? What else can the man do? He falls down and worships. And he pleads, Indeed, Lord, Lord, 
if that's true, and if I have found favor in your sight, pardon us. Pardon our iniquity and our sin. Bear it away. But please note something. Moses said, pardon us. Pardon our sin. It wasn't Moses' sin. Moses wasn't involved in this. He was up on the mountain receiving the instructions about the tabernacle from God. He had no part in this sin. God was ready to wipe out everybody else and start with this guy. Why pardon our iniquities? Cleanse our sin. Behold what happened is the mediator, the one designated by God and by the people, so identifies himself with the people that his sins, that, excuse me, their sins are taken upon him. And he says, forgive us of our sins. Your sins are forgiven. The face of the Lord shines upon the people. And there's one more question. There's one more petition. Take us for your inheritance. That's one more step, and we're not there yet. We'll come back to that in a couple of weeks. Okay. This was a heinous, monstrous sin. Everybody in this room has engaged in spiritual adultery or idolatry of some type. And perhaps we regularly engage in it, things that we set up. Let's hear, and I don't mean this paternalistically, I'm just quoting John. Let's hear these words. Little children, Jesus is better than Moses, and your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Let it wash. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Rest in him. Confess the sins. And find the forgiveness that is promised in him. The love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray.